Good evening, everyone. So tonight we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and start turning there, we will get there in just a few moments. Colossians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about, um, think about someone that you look up to, someone that you look to as a role model, someone that um, when you look at them in, in their Christian walk, you would say, I want to be like them. Someone that uh, you would say is exemplary when it comes to their walk with the Lord. And as you're thinking of that person, I want you to uh, think about why you chose that person. Why did you choose them? What characteristics about them captured your attention? Maybe it was a, a parent and, uh, because they were real, because they, they lived up to what they said. Maybe it was a friend because they were, they were faithful, they were loyal, they were always there for you whenever you needed something. Maybe it was the person that discipled you, and, and you're like, they were just so compassionate, and they were 110% com percent com uh, committed. Maybe you think of, of a grandparent, and he's like, they were just a real prayer warrior. And while these are all great characteristics of role models, it's interesting to see what the Bible says are some characteristics of, of role models, of truly exemplary people. And Paul, in the, in the uh, book of Colossians, talks about some characteristics of some people that are truly exemplary. So that is what we're going to take a look at tonight. So we're going to start out in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. And it says, So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing Him in every way. And I hope that's all of your goals and of everybody that's here tonight, to live a life that is worthy of the Lord, to live a life that's worthy uh, of, of the Lord, of the, the price that He paid for us, for us to have uh, salvation. And I hope our desire is to please him in every way. And if, if that is our desire, that leaves us with the question of, well, how do we live this life that's worthy of the Lord? How do we live this life that pleases him in every way? And the good news is Paul doesn't leave us hanging here. He tells us some of these characteristics of these truly exemplary people. So let's keep reading in verse 10. Uh, so it says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. So it says that you should bear fruit in every good work. That if you're an exemplary person, you will bear fruit. And the outward evidence of that fruit that you bear will be the good work that you do. So we can tell uh, by looking at, at our own lives, we can tell if we are bearing fruit by the good works that we are doing. But what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, bearing fruit is it's just a metaphor. The metaphors are used different ways in different places. Even within the Bible, you know, Jesus talks about bearing fruit, or be, pardon me, being fruitful. Um, Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit in one of his other letters. So what is Paul talking about here when he's saying be, uh, be fruitful? Well, if you were here last time I spoke, we talked about the church in Colossae, how Paul said it was an extraordinary church not because of his pastor, not because of his worship team, not because of his programs, but because it was a growing church. And one of the verses we looked at last time to see this was verse 6. Let's look back at verse 6 for a moment. It says, In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. And so the, the, church, uh, the, 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 the church globally was growing, it was bearing fruit, and the church in Colossae was doing the same thing. It was, be, they was being fruitful, they were growing. And so in, in verse 6, it's talking about how the church and how Colossae is being fruitful. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a few verses later, uh, Paul's talking about us personally being fruitful. 
And so I think Paul is trying to say here that we should be fruitful, that we should be sharing the gospel with other people personally. And that he's talking about that, uh, p- uh, sharing the gospel as being fruitful and people coming to the Lord, people being discipled under us. And so bearing fruit, or pardon me, bearing fruit is about evangelism. It's about discipleship. Or perhaps said a different way, it's about being spiritually productive. And so if we are spiritually productive, the outward evidence of our if it's being spiritually productive will be the good works that we do. Perhaps the, the good works that, that we do for those that we're trying to witness to in order to uh, open those doors. The good works that we do for those that we've won and that we're now discipling. And perhaps other ways that we can do good works. But being an exemplary person, is, Paul says, is more than just uh, being a person that's spiritually productive. Let's keep looking at verse 10. Uh, so it says, uh, so you live a life to be worthy of the Lord, pleasing, heaven every, pleasing him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So an exemplary person is not only a person that's spiritually productive, but it's a person who understands God. The kind of person who has knowledge of God. A good example of this would be for those of you that are married. Think about, do you know your spouse? Not just do you know things about them, their name, their favorite color, what they like, what they don't like. Not do you know things about them, but do you truly know them? Do you know them well enough to say, you know, in this particular situation, I have a pretty good idea what they would do if they were placed into that situation. And that is the type of thing that Paul is talking about here. He's saying that an exemplary person is a person that knows God that well. A person that knows him um, uh, well enough that he understands what God is doing to some extent. And to maybe even to some extent being able to predict what his actions are because they have that close of a relationship with God. But thinking back to the example uh, of your spouse, how did you get to the point to, to where you know them that well? Did you get that way by only talking to them when you had a problem? Did you get that way by only talking to them two minutes a day? Of course not. And the same thing is true with God. It's about walking with them day in and day out on a personal level every day. It's about relationship with him. And so an exemplary person is a person that's spiritually productive. And it's, about, uh, it's a person who, who walks with God daily in relationship to the point that they know him so well that they understand what he's doing. But Paul says there's even more than that. He lists out another characteristic in, in verse 11. Let's take a look. Being strengthened in all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And so an exemplary person is not only a person who's spiritually productive, It's not only a person who knows God, but it's also a person that has great endurance and patience. And endurance is about, is is exercise towards circumstances. It refers to hanging on during the the tough times. It's talking about coping and, and being content in all circumstances, even if those circumstances involve suffering. Some of the opposite things of, 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 uh, endurance are things like complaining, things like grumbling. Things like uh, becoming hopeless. But those that who endure, those that have endurance, they choose not to abandon their faith for something that looks less demanding and more promising. Patience, on the other hand, differs from um, uh, differs because it's about it's, it's directed towards people. 
It, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, those that refuse to yield to that feeling to strike back whenever they're wounded by people. Um, Augustine says that patience prefers to endure evil so as not to commit it. Patience prefers to endure evil so as not to commit it. So if we were to take this idea and we're just a, uh, of, of, of patience and endurance and just to boil it down to its most simple form, it's talking about not quitting, not giving up. It's the, it's the idea of, of a marathon runner. You know, a marathon's like 26.2 miles. And most of us in here tonight, if we had to run a marathon, we'd probably give up long before the race was over, long before we reached the goal. But an exemplary person never quits. In the marathon of life, they keep going, they keep pressing on towards the goal. But we all probably know people that have, have quit the race of life. Um, Jesus talks about people like this in the parable of the soil. He talks about how some of the seed falls on shallow soil, and it sprouts up, and it looks really great, and they volunteer for everything. But then after a while, you look around, and you're like, I wonder what happened to them. Where are they at now? I wonder why they quit. Well, some people quit because they fall back into their old lifestyle. And instead of running to the church, instead of running to those that can help them, they choose to run away, perhaps afraid that, of what others might think. Some people just get their nose out of joint. And instead of handling the conflict in the, in the way that, that Jesus calls for it in the Bible, they choose to leave, perhaps the church, perhaps church altogether. Others just get discouraged and give up. And others just forget that we're, we're dealing with sheep. We're often, as Christians, um, the Bible often uses the analogy of us being sheep. You know, but the, the view that we think of sheep is often tainted by what we see on TV and from Hollywood. And we're like, oh, sheep, they're so cute and cuddly and soft. And, and then we read the 23rd Psalm, and we overlay that, that view of it in there. We're like, oh, that's just so nice. But the people in Bible times, they knew what sheep are really like. I read a story about a, a man who took his, his family on vacation. And they were from the city, but they were going out to the country. And they, they stopped for a restroom break and to look for some souvenirs. And the father saw some sheep down the, down the road. So he said to the kids, let's go see the sheep. And so they, they go down to see the sheep, and there's one up by the fence. And the fence is fairly open so they can reach their, he can try, starts to reach his hand through. And the sheep sneezes on his hand. And the sheep blows snot all over the man's hand. But there's you see, there's times in ministry that we're, de when we're dealing with other believers that we forget that we're dealing with sheep. And that means sometimes we're going to get sheep's knot on our hands. And sometimes people get tired of getting sheep's knot on their hands, and so they decide to quit. But in exemplary people, they never quit. They're loyal. All, sometimes, uh, to some extent to people, but ultimately they're loyal to God. They have an attitude of, I will not he will not abandon me, and so I will not abandon him. They're, they're steadfast in every way. And they're, they have the mantra of, my heart's beating, I'm in the game. But guess what? Paul says there's, there's another characteristic of an exemplary person. Let's take a look at verse 12. In verse 12 it says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who qualifies you to share an inheritance of his holy people, in the kingdom of light. So an exemplary person is not only a person who's spiritually productive. It's not only a person who knows God. It's not only a person who never quits, but it's also a person who worships. And worship is, is about more than just singing songs. 
Singing songs is a way we worship, but it's not the way we worship. Worship is about much more than that. I've heard it defined that worship is a wholehearted, involuntary response to a new vision of who God is. It's about seeing God for who he is and fully and completely surrendering yourself to him. Not only during a worship service, but as a lifestyle of worship. And yes, there, there's times in, in worship services that, 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 worship, that it will arrive in an explosion of worship as we praise and we give praise and worship to him. But it's about more than those times. It's about a lifestyle of, of worship in response to who God is, what he has done for us. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Worship is saying that now that I see who God is, now that I understand who he is, now that I've learned something about him, I will joyfully respond to that knowledge. And the more we learn about him, the more we want to worship him. And the great news is, is that God is infinite. There's an infinite amount that we can learn about him. And so there's an infinite amount that we can learn about him and respond in praise. And when we think we figured it all out, we'll learn something new and worship and praise him even more. And it goes on and on and on for all eternity. So that's what Paul says an exemplary person is. It's a person who's spiritually productive. It's a person that knows God. It's a person that never quits. It's a person that's a genuine worshiper in all of life. But that's a pretty hard bar, isn't it? I mean, it's not multiple choice. It's not, hey, pick one of the four. It's, hey, do all four. And so if we were to stop here and we were to grade ourselves and say, how do we measure up in these categories? Or we were to ask ourselves, are, are, we, are, we worth, are we worthy of the Lord? Are we pleasing him in every way? How would you respond? I know myself, I would have to say no, not in every way. So where does that leave us? Well, the good news is Paul doesn't leave us hanging there. He gives us the solution. He says that, there's, that there is a secret ingredient that can take an ordinary life and make it extraordinary. And so that's Paul's point here. He's not putting up four impossible standards in front of the Colossian church and saying, no, 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 you're not going to be able to live up to these. And it's not what he's doing with us today. He's saying these are the four end goals. These are what you're striving for. It may take you a lifetime to get there, but there's a secret ingredient that can help you get there. So if you were here last time I spoke, you might have noticed that uh, I skipped a verse uh, from what we covered last time to what we covered tonight. And that verse, it has that secret ingredient in it. So let's look back at verse 9. It says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. So Paul's talking about saying, for this reason, he's referring back to what we covered last time. He's referring back to the fact that they were an extraordinary church. He's referring back to the fact that they were an evangelistic church. They were a church that was impacting their community for Christ. And so Paul is saying, because I see that this is your heart, and regrettably not all churches have this heart. Some are satisfied with okay. Some are satisfied with just a seat. But Paul is saying, because I see your heart, and that's not your heart. Your heart is to be an extraordinary church. He's saying that he's praying for them. And what's he praying for them? Well, let's keep reading in verse 9. So for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the, knowledge, with, with, with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Or I think the ESV has a little bit uh, more of a literal translation from, from the Greek. So we read it in the, the ESV. And so 
from the day that we heard, we have not ceased praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's saying that he's praying for them. He's praying that they may have the secret ingredient, that they may have the secret ingredient so they can live a life of excellence. They can live a life that's pleasing to God in every way. So what's the secret ingredient? Well, the ESV says it's the, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So it's about wisdom, or about knowledge. So Paul wants them to have knowledge. Okay, that makes sense. Because knowledge is a key ingredient for us uh, being spiritually mature. If you do a study in the New Testament, you'll see there's a definite link between biblical knowledge and spiritual maturity. Now, just because you have spiritual knowledge doesn't mean you automatically get spiritual maturity. I mean, a good example of this would be Satan. He, you know, when he's tempting Jesus out in the wilderness, he was quoting the Bible. So he knew the Bible pretty well, but he's probably not someone you want to model your life after. But if you want to become a mature Christian, you have to have that knowledge. Perhaps an analogy can help make this a little bit clearer to us. So if we say that spiritual maturity, our end goal is, say, a loaf of bread, and the knowledge that we need is uh, to grow to that maturity is flour. So we can see that you can't have a loaf of bread without flour, in the same way that you can't have spiritual maturity without biblical knowledge. But just because you have flour doesn't mean you automatically have a loaf of bread. It takes work. You know, you have to mix all the ingredients. You have to knead it. You know, it takes time for the bread to rise. It's a process. And the same thing is true here. The same thing is true with, with, with biblical knowledge and it growing into spiritual maturity. See, Paul is saying here, it's not about just being top of your class in Bible quiz. It's not about just being able to answer all the questions, uh, factual questions about the Bible correctly. He's saying it takes something more than that. He's saying it takes a different kind of knowledge, a different kind of wisdom. Let's look back at verse 9. It says, and so from that day, from the day, from that, day that we heard about you, we have not ceased praying for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So it's about spiritual wisdom and understanding. But what is spiritual wisdom and understanding? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not human wisdom and understanding. Paul is saying here that it's, it's not enough uh, for us to have human wisdom and understanding. We can't do it under our own faculties. Think about it this way. Are you smart enough with your human faculties to understand what the Bible is trying to say on, its, on, just, on your own. I would suggest that we're not. I would suggest that we're not smarter than the apostles. I mean, did the apostles, when they were walking with Jesus, did they understand the Bible? Did they understand the Old Testament? No. We can see many examples of us throughout the time that they were walking with Jesus. Let's pick on a few easy ones. How about the Emmaus Road? You know, Jesus had, had died, and he'd been put in the tomb, he'd risen again, and there's two disciples walking down the Emmaus Road, and they're, they're bummed out. And Jesus walks up next to him and says, hey guys, why are you so bummed out? And they're like, well, there's this guy, that we, that, this prophet and teacher, and he died, and we thought he was the Messiah, but I guess not. And Jesus gets frustrated and has to teach them of, uh, of what the scriptures meant from the, from the Old Testament, and how he came and he fulfilled those scriptures. 
Or what about uh, when Jesus is, is talking and he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and all the disciples are like, oh, he's talking about bread. And Jesus is like, no, that's not it at all. And he has to correct them. And so we see examples of this time and time again in, in the scriptures, up, up until the point where, where Jesus says in John 14, basically he says, yeah, you guys get an F in biblical interpretation. You're going to need help here. You can't do it on your own. And so in John 14, 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father to give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because they neither see him nor know him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And what's this helper going to do? Well, in John 14, 26, it says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. And then he reiterates it again in John 16 and verse 12. He said, Jesus says, And I, will, uh, I still have a great many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. He's saying, hey, I could sit down and lecture you guys for hours on end, but you just can't take any more right now. And so he's going to send the Spirit. And in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, whatever, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, therefore, I said that he will take all that is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is saying here that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to send a helper. Why? To help us understand the word of God. Since we can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. Sometimes people try to do it on their own. Some people learn the original Greek. They're saying, hey, if I can just read it in the original Greek, then I'll understand what God is trying to say. Some people go to the Holy Land saying, if I can just walk where Jesus walked, then I'll understand what the Bible is trying to say. Some people read all, every commentary they can find on a scripture and say, now I understand what, what this passage is trying to say. But if you don't involve the Holy Spirit, you're very likely going to get it wrong. You're going to miss the point. You see, there's a great group of biblical scholars back in Jesus' day that they read and studied the Old Testament and they, they created all these rules and these high standards uh, that would keep you from sinning. Things like, hey, we're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain, so we're just not going to say the Lord's name at all. And that will keep us from taking it in vain. And these people were super strict in their, their rules. They were known as the Pharisees. But guess what? They weren't using the Holy Spirit to interpret the Old Testament. And boy, did they get it wrong. They got it so wrong that they crucified Jesus. And it wasn't just that they weren't smart enough. I mean, there, there's, a, there's one of these Pharisees was named Saul. You might know him better as Paul. You know, most people would say that he's a brilliant man. If you've read much of the, the, the New Testament that he's written, you, you would know that the, uh, everything in there is, is complex and, and uh, his deep scriptural insights. But guess what? He got it wrong too before he got saved. He got it so wrong that he was killing Christians. I don't know how much further wrong that you can get than that. It's, it, it's not that he didn't have enough brain power. It's this that he was using only his brain power, trying to figure it out on his own. And once Paul got saved, he realized that it took more than this. 
And that's why you see in, in much of his writings in the New Testament, he, he talks about not human wisdom and understanding, but spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding, spiritual knowledge, because he knew that he understood that human understanding was not going to be enough. And so that's why Paul says things like 1 Corinthians 2.13, where it says, this is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught to us by the Spirit, explaining uh, spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. This is why Paul taught the way that he taught. This is why the apostles taught the way they taught. I mean, if you think about uh, the book of Acts, most of the book of Acts is, is talking about uh, the, the apostles teaching and ministering the word. Have you ever thought about why their ministry was so impactful? Why the, uh, the book of Acts says they turned their world upside down? I mean, Peter is an example. His first sermon out the, the gate, 3,000 people got saved. I mean, not, not too bad for a first sermon. So what was their secret? Well, I've read the book of Acts a few times, and the closest thing I've found to their secret is found in Acts chapter 6. There's something going on in Acts chapter 6. It was about food, distribution of food to widows. And these widows, they wanted the apostles to take care of it personally. Not unlike the church, right? I mean, sometimes when we have issues where where it's easy for us to say, well, I I have this issue that needs to be taken care of, and I don't want just anybody to take care of this issue. I want the senior pastor to take care of this issue. And if he can't come and take care of it right now, I'm going to be offended. I want the top dog to take care of it. That's what they were saying here in in Acts chapter 6, that they wanted the top dogs to take care of their needs. And the apostles, they say, no, we're not going to do that. Yes, we're going to find competent people to take care of it. Yes, we're not going to let the need go unmet. But we don't have time to devote our attention to this. So what are they going to devote their attention to instead? Well, Acts chapter 6 and verse 4 says, we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they devoted themselves full time to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. They were people who spent all their time praying and ministering the word. And that word, ministering the word, is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word logos. It's, it's a rare word in the New Testament to be translated for preaching or teaching or ministering the word. It can definitely be translated that way, but it's much more commonly translated as the word, talking about the Bible. And the, uh, in fact, it's the only word in the Greek that can be translated as both preaching and teaching and ministering the word as well as the word itself. If you remember, the book of Acts was written by a man by the name of Luke. And Luke was a doctor, so, you know, pretty smart guy. And he picked his words carefully. So I think Luke picked his words very carefully here. I think he was trying to say that they were going to spend their time praying. They were going to spend their time in the word and meditating on the word of God. And why were they going to do that? Because they needed to be ready to preach, to teach, and to minister God's word. Or to put it another way, they spent all their time praying and meditating on God's word so that they would be ready to minister God's word. And why did they do that? Because they knew they weren't smart enough to figure it out on their own. They were saying that they didn't have time to, to, to help the serve food to the widows, not because they were lazy, but they knew that if they didn't spend all their time, 100% of their time in prayer and meditation on God's word, that they weren't going to be able to figure this stuff out. 
They were saying they weren't comfortable preaching superficial sermons that they can get from a self-help book, but they wanted to preach sermons that mattered. They wanted to preach sermons that turned their world upside down. And in order to do that, they were going to need supernatural insight into God's word. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. You see, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and the Holy Spirit is God. So we have God living inside of us. And who better to instruct us on the word of God than God himself? God wants to reveal the truth of the scripture to us. He's saying you don't need a Bible degree. He's saying you just need the Holy Spirit. He's saying that God wants to be our our, our tutor. He wants to open the eyes of our hearts. And that's what he's saying here. The Bible is essential to growing us to maturity in Christ. But it's not enough to just get the word of God in our head. We have to get it deep down inside of us to truly understand it. And when we understand it fully, then we can become fully mature Christians. But if we don't ever take the time to learn it fully, then we can never become fully mature Christians. You will, you will never, you, will ha- you have to have full knowledge in order to be fully pleasing to God. And so the secret ingredient for us to get there is the Holy Spirit. And that means that if you and I, if we want to become mature believers, it's not enough for us to have just five-minute devotions like the world says we should, that's all we need today or all that we have time for today. It's not enough for us to, to read a chapter and check it off our list and close our Bible and say, well, now let's get back to life. It's not about just reading the words, but we need to be able to dig into them and try to figure out What's God trying to say in this scripture today? What is he trying to communicate to us today about this scripture? Trying to figure out what's the big idea of this scripture? And when we figure that out, it's not then close your Bible and, okay, now back to life. No, it's doing the same thing that the apostles did. It's taking it with us. It's praying about it. It's meditating on it all day long. And by the way, how often are we supposed to pray? Without ceasing. And how often does the Bible say we're supposed to meditate? Day and night. So it may come up, the, the question may come to your mind, well, how are you supposed to get anything done? Well, the answer is simple. We, we pray and we meditate while we're doing the other stuff. You see, devotions is not about five minutes with God. Devotions is about a lifetime walking with God. Where we, where, uh, where we either have, the, have the, the, the big idea, or maybe you don't even have the big idea. You've read the scripture, you can't figure it out. And you spend the whole day praying and meditating on the scripture, saying, God, I'm not smart enough to figure this out on my own. I'm going to need your help. What's the big idea in this scripture? Or if you have the big idea, praying and saying, God, this is, this is the big idea, but how am I supposed to apply this to my life? How is it supposed to affect my walk? How is it supposed to affect my relationship with others? How is it supposed to affect my relationship with you, God? And as we're doing this day in and day out, We may not be able to figure everything out on our own, but you'll be surprised how often the Holy Spirit reveals some deep insight to you about his word. And you will be able to understand it on a far deeper level. And one of the biggest reasons, I think, in the United States for uh, spiritual immaturity, at least in my opinion, is arrogance. You see, sometimes we, we get so caught up that we think that we can figure it out on our own 
Or if we can't figure it out on our own, we just pull out our phone and like, we can Google it and we'll find out in 30 seconds. But that's not what the Holy Spirit wants. The Holy Spirit wants us to take the time to ask him, what are you trying to communicate to us through the scripture? But it takes time to know God. And it's not just about getting the knowledge in your head, but to truly and deeply get the knowledge inside of you. And when you do that, then you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. Then you can begin to to naturally grow into the, the person that Paul is describing, a person that's spiritually productive. And like Jesus at the, with the woman at the well, you'll be able to talk to your coworkers with deep spiritual insight. You'll be used to listening to the Holy Spirit's voice and you'll be able to discern things that are going on in their lives and be able to share uh, in ways that only God can, 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 sh- can reveal to them. You'll know God. You'll be able to, pr- uh, to some extent, predict his actions because you know him so well that uh, not because you've read the Bible, not because you've memorized a theology textbook, but because you have it deep down inside of you in your heart, and your heart beats in tune and in sync with his. And when you know God with all spiritual wisdom like that, you won't quit. Why not? Because you know that you know God so well that you know that he will never give up on you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And besides, you've read the end. You know the, the end game. You know he's coming back. And spoiler alert, he's going to win. He's coming back with a sword and a tattoo in his thigh. He's going to kick tails and take names. And after that, there's going to be a party like the world has never known. And I, for one, don't want to miss that. So I will never quit. And when you know God like that, you can't help but worship. And the more insight, the more knowledge you get into him, uh, about him, your heart just explodes in worship. And your whole life starts becoming about living a life of worship. Because you're continually learning new things about God. And the secret ingredient that makes this all possible is the Holy Spirit. If you let him work in you, if you spend time with him, if you ask him, he will help you understand God's word deeper than you could possibly ever imagine. And that knowledge will transform your life. If the worship team wants to go ahead and come back, I'm going to close here real quick. Tonight, I'd like to go ahead and open these altars. I'd like to spend some time praying and meditating on, on this scripture that we covered tonight in Colossians. Asking God, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what he, what he wants you to take away out of this passage. Maybe he'll be saying to you, you don't spend any time in devotions. Why, don't, why not start tomorrow? Maybe he'll say to you, well, you spend some time in devotions, but then you just close your Bible and go back to life. Why not try living a life of devotion? Maybe he'll say, you live a life of devotion, but sometimes you're a little arrogant. Sometimes you try to figure it out on your own. Once you start to live a lifestyle of prayer and meditating on God's word. And maybe he'll say, you know, you live a life of devotion. You live a life of prayer and meditation but you know what you haven't arrived you can still grow in god you can still become more spiritually productive you can still become more bold in sharing your faith you can still go closer to god sometimes your heart your heart doesn't beat in sync with his 
You can still grow closer to God because sometimes you feel like quitting. You can still grow closer to God because sometimes your life of worship is not always a life of worship. Regardless of what the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart tonight, these altars are open, or you can make an altar where you're at. But won't you spend some time in prayer tonight asking what He would have you to get out of this? And then Pastor CJ will come back and close us out here in a little bit. So the altars are open.